0: I'm sure most people could agree that there's one thing that everyone finds terrifying captivity. Being held against your will with no sure way of getting out. What happens when your captivity is not over just a span of days or even just a year, but a whole decade? For three young girls and women, they spent a decade being raped beaten, and tortured. This is part two of the Cleveland Three. Hey everybody, this is Noah, and you are listening to the Eerie Podcast. I just want to let you guys know that I am a little bit sick. I kind of started to get sick on Saturday, and then today... Sunday. Gosh, I am feeling like absolute crap. I'm hoping I'll feel better tomorrow so that I can work. <laughs> but I apologize for the sniffles you might hear. I will try and edit them out. And I'm sorry I sound like, I'm sorry I sound so nasally. I am trying to, I literally have to blow my nose every 10 minutes. It's so bad. My nose is so raw. But I want to make sure to get this episode out because I don't want you guys to have to wait I am gonna say that it's going to be a three-parter at the least (laughs) there's just so much info and I want to make sure to share it and it's it's so I can be as detailed as possible but also because out of respect to the victims and they wrote about these experiences so that they could share them and I want to make sure to at least utilize whatever information I can This episode is going to dive right into the dark stuff. Sexual violence is going to be very prominent in this one, especially even more so than the last one. So I apologize ahead of time. And if you need to skip this episode, we did just release a ghost stories episode. (laughs) Sorry, my brain is a little foggy. But yeah, so feel free to go listen to that one. If you want to skip this series, it's completely okay, but We're going to jump in right where we left off, where Michelle was in the basement, and she was tied up or bound with chains, like rusty, gross chains, in this gross, dank basement. And before we left, she had a motorcycle helmet put over her head, so she could have some semblance of sensory deprivation. I did want to throw out there... So sensory deprivation is actually a different type of torture that is more on the psychological side versus the physical pain torture. This type of torture is complete sensory deprivation. For sensory deprivation torture, a person is isolated and held in a cell that deprives them of all senses and identity. The prisoner is put in a place where they're deprived of all color. Like their cell will be either completely white or black. The use of sensory deprivation torture makes it so people can't hear any noises. Usually they will just have silence and maybe some smells will be in there. But typically they try to remove smells, any sort of sensory that you can sense that you could have of where you are or what you are, what you're in is usually taken away. So for Michelle Knight, this helmet caused some sort of sensory deprivation. She said when she was in this, she didn't know what time of day it was at all. Like, she just didn't have any clue. Like, her time, sense of time disappeared, and she became depersonalized. And if you don't know what depersonalized is, it's a detachment within yourself regarding one's mind or body. And the world kind of becomes vague and dreamlike and less real, and nothing seems significant. But anyway, we'll get into that in a moment. So before we get started, like really going in depth, make sure to follow this podcast on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. That way you can get notifications of the episodes coming out. I'm trying to do like a not so crazy one in between each of these parts of the series just because I don't want it to be too much because this is a lot and it's very dark. I'm gonna have to edit out so many like sneezes and me blowing my nose and I apologize for all of that. I know I'm sick so I can't really help it but i could wait to do this but i don't want to i just want to make sure to get this done and get this out because i love you guys all right so we're gonna jump right back into where we were and then we are going to move right into the time in between the next victim getting to the house and then we'll talk a little bit about that victim and then jump into third time. And then we'll talk about the other victim as well. And then for the final episode, I think we'll talk more about just some of the stuff that happened over that span of years. And then we will go into some of the other stuff. Like I said, Michelle had no clue what time it was, like or even what day, when she woke up. Because she passed out after he put on the motorcycle helmet. And... What she did know, though, is that she couldn't see Ariel anywhere. She couldn't hear anything either because it was super, super quiet in the house. So she assumed that he left. She said that when she woke up, she was really groggy and she thought it was because the helmet wasn't allowing her to breathe enough to get enough oxygen to her brain. So she started moving and tried to get some of the, the things binding her off. And when she started to get the stuff that was binding her hands off and then she started wiggling to get the chains loose, they actually started to come loose. As she was making headway, she heard a truck pull into the driveway and she quickly put the helmet back on her head because she had taken it off and tried to wrap the twisty bands, as she called them, around her hands again. And she couldn't, though, because there wasn't enough time. Not even two minutes later, she said, Ariel came down the stairs, turned on the light, and was like, Why did you take off those bands? And then he was like, I thought I could trust you, but now you're going to have to be punished. And a warning sexual violence is about to happen. He picked up a pipe and waved it in her face. And he told her, If you scream, I'm going to shove this pipe right down your throat. And Michelle, didn't make a sound. Then he unlocked the chains, took off the helmet and ripped off all of her clothes, which is just a shirt and underwear. I'm not going to go into detail about this because she actually didn't want to share it because it was so horrible. But one thing she did say was that he didn't just rape her the way he did the previous day. She said he murdered my heart or at least a small part that was still left. She said that he forced her to do things that she can't even describe, because they were just too horrible. She was in so much shock, she said she couldn't even pray to get out of there. She said she had to just lie there like she was dead. I'm going to quote this part from her book, Finding Me, A Decade of Darkness, Life Reclaimed. She said, In a way, I think part of you has to die in order to get through a thing like that. It's the only way a person can survive it. End quote. After he finished what he was doing to her for three hours, he kicked her and then threw more money at her and said, I'll be paying you for your time here. And I'll keep it for you in there. It's just shitty all around. Like, you're forcing yourself upon this younger woman and you're throwing money at her like she's a a prostitute when she's not. And there's nothing against sex workers either. I, w- I want to make sure that's clear. But this woman was not, and for her, it was just shitty. She said after sweat and blood were pouring from her, after a few minutes, he finally spoke. And he was like, this is where you're going to stay until you show me I can trust you then maybe you can move upstairs. He chained Michelle back to the pole and pushed the helmet over her head. And when he went to go leave, he turned it off the light. And Michelle, she just sat there in the pitch black and she was telling herself that she was going to die down here. She said that she was just so exhausted and beaten that she leaned against the pole and tried to breathe a little bit better in the heavy helmet, as she prayed that she would wake up because she felt like this was the, just the most horrible nightmare she could imagine. She said, and she doesn't in the book that she wrote, she said that she would never use his name again. She only referred to him as the dude in the book. She said that she didn't think monsters deserve to have a real name. So she, yeah. Just called him the dude. And I can't blame her. Why call this man by his name? He doesn't deserve any sort of respect. <laughs> so he came down and yanked off the helmet. And he was carrying a plate of food in a glass. And he put them down on the table. And came closer to her. She said he smelt like rotting fish. Sorry, like this. Some of the stuff that. This man she describes in her book that he smells like literally makes you want to throw up, especially right now I'm sick. It's fucking disgusting. So he said to her, you've got to eat something or you're going to die. And she was thinking, okay, so now you're worried about me dying? Moron. He said, I know you don't want to eat the food I'm bringing you, but I'll prove it's okay. He continued. He stuck the plate out under her nose. It was spaghetti with red sauce on top of it. He said, my mother made it. See, look, I'll eat some first. He used his fork to pick up some pasta, put it in his mouth to show her it was okay. And eventually she did eat because she was so hungry. She ended up eating the whole plate of spaghetti because she was, I mean, she hadn't eaten in days at that point. He gave her some water and she said that she drank it so fast because she was so thirsty that she almost choked. There was a green bucket down there, and Ariel undid her chains enough so that she could go to the bathroom before he left her down there again. She said that just having this bucket to go to the bathroom in was something that gave her a little bit of happiness. She even said in her book, and I quote, after your life is stolen from you, Even the most basic stuff makes you grateful. So she spent a lot of time down there. And like I said, she was sensory deprived, so she couldn't see much through the helmet. She started to learn like certain smells meant that it was a certain part of the day. Like in the morning, Ariel would make coffee and she could smell it from in the basement. So that was how she could tell it was that certain part of the day. She said that Ariel always stank really bad. So a lot of her meals on that after that point were an egg McMuffin from McDonald's and some orange juice. She said that some days that would be her only meal. Some days she would get a little bit more. But when he would come downstairs, he would be dressed sometimes in an outfit, like a uniform. It was a burgundy shirt, black pants, and black combat boots. This is when Michelle put two and two together and remembered that Emily had said that Ariel was a school bus driver, which is freaky to think about, in my opinion. Super weird. She said that he would come home from work most days and he would either be listening to music or listening to porn. Either way, it was really loud when he would. She said that when he would come downstairs, he would smell like beer, rum, weed, pretty much all those. Sometimes he would come down with his stuff hanging out, which is gross. <laughs> Fucking disgusting, man. But she said that nighttime was when he always did the worst stuff to her. At the end of the day, whenever she heard his boots coming down the stairs, she tried to prepare herself for the next three or four hours of torture. Unfortunately, there's no way to prepare for that, no matter how many times it happens to you. She said it was always just horrible. So on the weekends, she was given more food than just the McMuffin. Dried up pizza, spoiled beans and hard white rice, or like warm runny yogurt, or a stale taco. She said it was all disgusting, and I, I can't blame her. Usually, meals meant that she would be abused, so before she could even eat, he would take her over to a pile of dirty, disgusting-smelling clothes and violate her. When this happened to her, she thought of a lot of stuff from her childhood that was good, like the taste of Arby's or roller skating, and also thought of music, like the wheels on the bus go round and round. And... She thought of Joey's smile and his cute button nose, she said. After he abused her almost every time, he would sit down and start talking trash to her. No one's looking for you. There's barely any flyers up around you and nothing's been on the news. He was like, I can do whatever I want. He gives a crap. So Ariel not only was physically abusing her, but he was mentally abusing her as well. And making her think that she was worthless and no one's looking for her and that she would never get out. She said that she tried to act like this stuff didn't hurt her, but it destroyed her. It broke her down even more so than she already was. That's even possible. He would like sometimes talk to her like he did that first day, like she was his girlfriend. Like one time he was drunk and he was like, I play guitar. My band is really good. And he would smile so proud of himself. And she was internally just thinking, do I look like I fucking care about your stupid band? One time, the guys in the band came over and he gave her a forewarning. He was like, if you make any sounds, that's it. You're done. So his friends came over while she was held captive in this basement. It's crazy. She said even if she wanted to scream, the music was way too loud when they came over, so it didn't even make sense to try. And those guys came over almost every Saturday. She said, after a while, she learned these routines and she could kind of tell what days it was and she said it didn't really matter, though, what day it was because they all ended in the same horrible way. She said, being In the dark all the time and by herself. She started to go a little bit crazy and started talking to her son as if he was there. She thought a lot about how she could get out and what she could do. (laughs) She even tried using the helmet and hitting it to the pole that she was bound to so that she could see if the neighbors heard her and called 911, but obviously that didn't work. And she prayed a lot, like for hours and hours. She said it seemed like months that he kept her down in the basement. She tried to keep account of the days, but she ate so little that she lost a lot of weight, and eventually Ariel had to start tightening them every single day so that so that she wouldn't get out. She never got to shower at any point while she was in the basement. She said. When her period would come, he would throw napkins to her and she would try and use them as tampons, but it didn't really work. I'm not going to go into the rest of the details because this is getting a little a little hard to read. But I think you guys can ascertain that if she hasn't been washed, there's a lot of disgusting stuff on her. Eventually, she was allowed to go upstairs. She doesn't know when this happened, but... So, when he came to bring her upstairs. She was still half asleep and really scared, or really surprised when he started unlocking the chains and told her, yeah, you're going upstairs. She said she felt really queasy and had to hold on to the pole for balance after being unchained. She hadn't really been walking around for months at this point, or presumably months. So he gripped her arm, brought her upstairs, And she saw daylight for the first time after a long time. It burnt her eyes, she said. She said everything was blurry. She was really dizzy until her eyes got used to the light. She said it was warmer in the kitchen after the cold of the basement. So he brought her back to the pink room. And there was a bucket in there. And a very long chain with a padlock was on the bed. He wrapped her up in the chain and then attached it to the radiator that was on the wall. And the chains were actually going through the wall, I think around some of the beams inside the wall. During one of these random after conversations, Ariel, and we don't need another reason to hate him, but this is another reason to hate him. He talked about how he hated black people, which you're already a predator and a creep. And weird. He even talked about some of his life, like how he used to have a girlfriend after his wife left him, and how people had sexually abused him, how he loved to watch porn, and how he loved looking at blonde girls. He also said another fucking creepy thing that he wished he'd gotten to John Benet Ramsey first. So fucking gross. JonBenetRancy, if you don't know, is a child that was murdered. Fucking disgusting, man. Just oh, f- fucking creep. We're not going to jump too much into this. Um, I think you guys can ascertain what happens moving forward. But eventually, he started letting Michelle have some leeway, like going out in the backyard Yeah, he eventually let her get a TV, go in the backyard. Obviously, when she was in the backyard, he threatened her. He had a gun with him and would keep it in his pocket. He threatened her that if she tried to go anywhere, that he would shoot her. She wasn't allowed to shower until March of that following year. And then eventually he also got her a TV, like a small TV, that she could watch TV on because... He was like, oh, I know you get bored. Yeah, you keep her chained up in the fucking room. All right, you guys. So now we're going to jump into a little bit about Amanda Berry. So Amanda Berry was born on April 22nd, 1986. So her zodiac sign was a Taurus. Her mother's name was Luana Miller. And details about her dad aren't available. Amanda has a sister named Beth Serrano and comes from a pretty large extended family. There's not too much about her early life. Most of the stuff out there, and including in her book, was mostly about her 10-year-long abduction. But let's jump into the day this all happened. For Amanda, this was just a normal day. It's the day after Easter, April 21st, 2003. It was the day before her birthday. She got ready for work like she normally does. She put on her Burger King u- uniform, which she hated. It was a burgundy shirt, black jeans, and black sneakers. <laughs> and she talks about talked about how she hated the nasty polyester pants that they wanted her to wear. So she's like yeah, no, I'm not wearing those. I'm going <laughs> to wear some black jeans. <laughs> Amanda was a neat and orderly girl. For instance, she always ironed her clothes. She was that person who put colors, like colored clothing together with that specific type of color and like the type and organized them from like light to dark. So she was like very anal and I can actually relate to that. I organized my clothing similarly, so I get it. On the following day, she was turning 17. She was pretty excited because she was going to go out for her 17th birthday with her friends. She had some money that she had saved up, and it was hidden in her bra drawer. This day, she was thinking about calling out sick, wanted to just stay home, read magazines. She was a typical teenage girl during this time where she read Entertainment Weekly, People Magazine, Rolling Stone, stuff like that. Her job was a 10 minute walk, so she left her house like she normally does and goes in for a shift. So this day she was worried about getting there late and she luckily arrived right at four, right on time. She hated the smell of French fries and burgers and really grease. She says in her book how she felt like it never came off her clothing. And it never came off her, herself. So she's felt like she always smelled like grease, which I don't know. If you've worked in fast food, which I did when I was like a young teenager, it's not fun. And it's true. Everything's greasy and gross. It's not fun. For those people who do like it, like working in that environment, it takes a lot of pluck and I applaud you. I, I mean, I could handle it, but... And I did it for years and years, but I I could not do it now. I just don't have the energy. Fast food is a very difficult job. You have to deal with a bunch of people just being assholes all the time. You have to deal with gross food sometimes. And usually, I don't know about you, but for any of the places that I worked, after I left that job, I absolutely cannot eat or drink anything from any of those places. No, thanks. <laughs> but yeah, so she got to work and put her stuff away, put on her headset and was like, welcome to Burger King. May I take your order? She said the day went by really slow. Typically, a Monday would be fast it, but it was the day after Easter, so it was dead that day on her break. She called her boyfriend DJ to see if he would pick her up. He didn't answer. So she called him again in a few minutes. He still didn't answer. She really wanted to see him that night so that she, it was before her birthday. They were dating about a month and she said she really liked him. He was a sweetheart. He opened doors for her and she actually met him while she was working at that Burger King. After she finished her shift later, she was going to call her mom and Beth, who is her sister, To get a ride, but none of them were answering their phone, so they are probably still at work. It was 7.30, and still light outside, so she just started walking. As she was walking, her phone rang, and her sister Beth said she's getting out of work now, and Amanda tells her the same thing. Hey, yeah, I just left. I'm walking. And her sister Beth was like, yeah, we can come get you. What time should I pick you up? And... Amanda was like, No, I'm good, I'm already walking, it's fine. So as she's discussing the guy she is dating, she saw an old maroon van blocking the sidewalk ahead. There was a gentleman pulled into a driveway, which is why he was blocking the sidewalk. She walked in front of the van to get by, and she was still on the phone, not paying much attention. And she looked and noticed that the girl in the passenger seat looked familiar. And she was pretty sure that the girl used to work at Burger King. And the guy in the driver's seat was, like, looking at Amanda as she walked by, smiling. And Amanda smiles back and keeps walking. Just a minute later, as she kept walking, a van pulled up to her. And the gentleman rolled down his window, asked her if she needed a ride home. She said she had seen him before. She didn't really know where. At this point, she was only, like, a five-minute walk home she was already halfway there she was still on the phone with beth and amanda nods yes to him because he looked familiar so he lets her in and amanda says beth i gotta go because i'm getting a ride as he's driving away amanda notices that the girl's no longer in the van the girl has gone so amanda asks where is your daughter she was like, oh shit, I'm alone in this car with this dude. <laughs> he completely ignored her and was just like, so you work at Burger King and then talked about his son working at Ber- Burger King and then talked about his daughter, Angie. She knew both of them. They had gone to school together. Amanda asked how his daughter's doing. They have pretty nice conversation, but then he asked, do you want to go see Angie? Cause the, She apparently hadn't seen Angie in a long time. And he's like, yeah, she's at the house. Would you like to go see her? And Amanda was like, yeah, I haven't seen her in a long while. So why not? And she has her cell phone with her. She bought it from someone at work, I guess. And she said that he commented on how it's a nice phone. So they got to his house and he commented on her phone and asked to see it, to play around with it, check it out. It's pretty cool. And he says, Angie's inside. Let's go see her. Just like with Michelle Knight, they went in. Amanda noticed how disgusting the place was. He brought her up to the white room and then to the pink room through there. And the weird part is when Amanda was walking up here, she peeked through the door like the keyhole in the room that Michelle was in. And he said, oh, yeah, that's my roommate. Yeah, roommate. Uh, Guys, this is where it's going to get fucking horrible. And I apologize. Hate this part. So they walk into the rooms. Suddenly, he shuts the door and blocks it. She's like, what are you doing? He's like, pull down your pants. She says no. And she wants to go home. I think we, we know where we're going here. But he does his thing. He doesn't assault her fully just yet. He... Just did his gross touching himself thing because he's a pervert and disgusting. She comments that he's about five foot seven, stocky, has a beer belly, receding hairline, dark eyes, and brown hair. She said she would have never even looked at him if it wasn't for this. He again asked her to pull down her pants. She said that he got really scary, like his voice changed, his eyes turned completely black, his mannerism. She started crying and pulled down her pants and then came to the realization that she made a mistake, which you couldn't have known, Amanda. None of these victims could have known. Master manipulators, guys. Fucking crazy master manipulators. That's what a lot of these freaks are. I hate this gentleman. I I apologize for all the commentary, but I despise rapists so much i think they're just the scum of the planet like not only that i mean, I despise killers too but especially people who kill kids but like this this guy is just another fucking story he's just so disgusting okay and i'll go more into that later too she kept asking him to take her home and he even says i'm going to take you home now after he's all set Which, to me, is so fucked up. She is, okay, good. Okay, take me home. They start towards the door. Then he, like, stopped and was like, actually, turn around, get on the bed, and take your pants down. She screams and says, if you don't take me home, I'm going to call the police. Then she realizes she can't call anybody because he still has her phone. And she starts screaming, help me. And... She's At this point, she thinks this other person there is his roommate. So she, like, is wondering why this girl isn't coming to help her. She runs into the bigger bedroom and tries to open the door to the hallway, but there's no knob because this guy is a freaking creep. Then she looks at the door next to it and goes to it, opens it, and realizes it's a closet. Obviously, she's cornered, and it's fight or flight. And she's a tiny girl, yet again, not as short as Michelle Knight, but still pretty tiny. He was about 50 pounds heavier than her. And this is when he violated her. And she said that it hurt so bad. She said that it hurt so bad. And then after he's all set, he's like, I'm going to take you home now, but you have to be quiet. She said she knew he was lying. There's no way. He's not going to take her home. Why would he? He tapes her mouth and tells her not to scream until he gets her home. And then he duct tapes her mouth from ear to ear and slams her wrists together and tapes them too. And then does the same to her ankles. He then put the motorcycle helmet on her. And she says she could see out of the visor up until her tears got so bad that it made everything inside foggy. And then he says, don't worry. I'm just doing this so I can carry you to the van and take you home. All right, Eerie Tribe. I'm so excited to talk about today's sponsor, Audible. Audible is, (laughs) I can honestly say that I use Audible on a daily level. I read a lot, but sometimes I don't have time to just read, or maybe I'm, you know, hitting the hay and I need to put the book down and just listen for a little bit. New members can actually try Audible for free for 30 days using our link. As an Audible member, you can choose one title per month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. You can find some $50 audiobooks and get them super cheap by just having this Audible membership. There's so many Audible exclusives as well that you can only listen to on Audible. You'll discover exclusive Audible originals from top celebrities, renowned experts, and exciting new voices in audio, which I might be one of those soon. But for real, anything you're interested in, you can find it on Audible. There's so much on Audible that you can check out. If you visit audibletrial.com slash Pod, you can get one free month and one free book that you get to keep forever. So check it out, guys. Strongly recommend it. He picks her up, throws her over his shoulder, and then carries her down to the first floor and then down to the basement. He Puts her on the cold concrete and puts her back against the pole, much like Michelle. He uses the same rusty chain, wraps her around her stomach, and clamps it shut with a padlock, puts the key in his pocket. Then he takes off the motorcycle helmet, puts on the little black and white TV, sitting on like a little stool down there, and says, be quiet, don't scream. And don't try to get away. And I quote from the book. And she said that he said this in a weird, oddly calm voice, which was weird because he just did all these horrible things. She said that the basement was gross, much like Michelle said. There's junk everywhere, dusty shelves, and it smells like wet dirt. And she just keeps begging for help, like screaming. She gets a little bit loose and starts screaming. And she bites on the tape on her wrist and begins chewing it off bit by bit. Takes forever, but she gets her hands free. And she was so full of hope at that moment. But she can't get out of the chains, and that's the problem. She pulls so tight that it rips her jeans and her shirt and she just keeps screaming somebody help me she th- at this point thinks this guy is going to kill her and she has no clue what time it is and she struggles for a very long time and until she passes out against the pole so when she wakes up he's like I told you not to try to get away in a cheerful voice and she thought it was strange how weird he like his mood shifted and you see that i'm not saying that this is a sign of anything this is very common among people who are rapists because they're fucked up (laughs) no there's like a sense of remorse a little bit that some some of these people feel but obviously not enough remorse by god to not freaking do it in the first place but Some of these people feel like a little bit of remorse after doing something bad, but still doesn't make anything any better. You ruined someone. Like you broke someone's soul, and that's not okay. And lock them up. Lock them up. Okay. He brought her breakfast that morning, let her out, and let her stand up, and brings her to the shower. Gets in with her and washes her and was like really kind and sweet and it's very freaking strange. She just remembers feeling really disgusted by his touch and she wanted to run away, but she's afraid. Then he gives her like new clothes and takes her to the living room and they sit on the couch and hands her a cold ham, egg and cheese croissant. And he's like talking to her while they're sitting there. But she said she doesn't remember anything he said because she was in so much shock. Eventually, is let's go back upstairs. They go back upstairs. Amanda is abused a lot more. I'm not going to go into the details of those. I, it's already bad enough that we even have to talk about this case in general. It's, it's good to share their story, but like I said, it's like it's very similar to what happened to Michelle Mike. She was there for a few days. He treated her a little bit differently than Michelle. Michelle was pretty much locked up all the time. He treated her like a little more kindly and that I, I say that sparingly because nothing this guy does is kind, but he gave her a little bit more freedom as far as like watching television and stuff like that. And this is where the twisted part comes in. And he already did this with Michelle, but it's even more twisted. So he allowed Amanda to watch some of the news reports about, herself and her family's crying begging for someone to bring her home she was watching it with him and he would he was proud she said like the look on his face showed that he was proud of his work he had a look of admiration like he'd done something big and i quote she said this makes him feel important that to me is one of the most fucked up parts is you're watching this fucking mother and her sister bawling on television and you are sitting there proud of your fucking self? Garbage person. Fucking garbage. Absolute trash. Sorry, guys. I keep going on tangents. I'm assuming you guys don't care. And if you don't like it, it's fine. Skip to the next episode. But anyway, by the time she's been gone six days, she had been raped at least 25 times. He would make random comments to her and slobber all over her face and tell her that And I quote, and this is gross, I'm sorry, but it just shows you how, like, immature and how much he felt like he owned these girls, but he was like, these boobs are mine. Eventually, she told him that she would like something to write on, and he asked if she wanted a journal. She said yes, so he brought her one. He said, you can write what you want, but don't write any names. She knew that he might read it. So she was careful about what she would say. But she wrote as if she was writing to her family. And she said that maybe it'll feel like she's talking to them on the phone or sending them a letter. And she said she missed them so much, she just wants them to know that she's alive. And I'm going to read her first journal entry. And this comes directly from the book written by Amanda Berry And the book's called Hope, A Memoir of Survival in Cleveland. So 427... 2003, I never thought I would miss my mom so much, but it's so true. Never know what you got till it's gone. I just can't wait to go home. I'm 17 now, but don't have a life. But he told me I'm young and will go home before summer. Another two months. Tomorrow, it will be a week I've been here. So I've survived this long. I'll just try not to think about it but it's hard. I saw mom and Beth crying on TV. My mom said, Mandy, I love you. And I started bawling. I love you, mom. See you soon. Love Amanda. She said that writing helped her kind of feel a little bit better, like it was she was getting it out. Obviously, it didn't fix her situation, but Amanda said that she heard an Eminem song and she was a big fan of Eminem, by the way, but she heard an Eminem song and apparently it had some Aerosmith, like some parts of it that were Aerosmith's Dream On, which was her mom's favorite. She said she would listen to it and go lost in music and it took her back home for a few minutes. She said she wasn't always the best daughter and she would argue about stupid stuff we all did, <laughs> but she said when she gets out of there, she wouldn't do that anymore. Amanda went on to say that he controls what she eats, what she sees, what she hears, but he cannot control what she thinks, so she's going to take her mind somewhere else when he climbs onto her. She continued to see like pictures of herself on the news. she talked about how it was strange to see how everyone knew her name now, and she wasn't really that far away from any of the people that she loved. She was mere miles. And she kept thinking about how, didn't someone see me get into this van? Maybe a neighbor or someone? Much like Michelle Knight said, the radio was blasting all the time. And that's that way, while he was at work, no one could hear them if they were screaming or doing anything crazy. She would constantly take her mind elsewhere when he would come on to her. And he would play so one weird thing about Ariel Castro was he would play mind games with all of his victims. He used not only torture tactics, but he like severely fucked with their heads to the point where he came in one day and this was in the first few months of Amanda being there and said with her cell phone, cause he still had her cell phone in hand, which I'm going to throw out of opinion in a moment, but, Let's continue this part. He came in and said he he called her mother and told her that they were in love and that you're my wife now. Amanda started crying and was like, you talked to my mom? And he was like, yeah, I called her with your phone. She asked when you would be home, and I told her I didn't know. I told her you were safe. Obviously, Amanda asked to talk to her, and he just told her that he talked to her sister as well and told them that she was okay and that she was with, with him now. Then he let her listen to the voicemails that she had on her cell phone, which I'm going to throw out my opinion on this, and this is just my opinion. You guys don't have to agree with this. But if she had a cell phone that was still being used, I'm fairly certain they had tracking at this point in time. They could have used cell phone signals to track her phone. Why didn't they? Why didn't they? Because these girls would have faced a shit ton less torture over years and years if they had done that. I don't know. That's my opinion. I just feel like it's insane to me that they didn't check that. Obviously, her cell phone's still receiving voicemails. And if he turns it on just once, doesn't that ping? I'm not like an expert on cell phone signals and how the police track that kind of stuff, but I'm fairly certain they could have. Anywho, she listens to her friends' voicemails, voicemails from her niece, Mariah. She's saying, please come home. And then one was even, which one is your house? I'm trying to find it for your birthday party. And she just begs him to call them so that she can tell them that she's alive. He tells her to write to them which for him was just a tactic to make it so people stop looking for her. But he, he says, there, but there are rules. You have to tell them that you ran away, you left on your own, and that you're okay, so they shouldn't worry about you. Amanda obviously was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll never tell my family that I ran away. That would hurt them. She was like, I'd rather have them wondering what happened to me than think I would leave them. And he was like, okay. And then does the disgusting deeds again because he's a piece of shit. So by April 29th, she notices that they haven't shown her on the news at all that day. They run a story about, like, bad lettuce, and she's thinking about how he probably didn't actually call her mom. It would have been big news if he did. She saw a news report at the same time, which we will cover this story about Elizabeth Smart. We'll cover this later on, because we're going to jump into some murder stories after this. She talks about Elizabeth Smart, who was a girl in Utah who got kidnapped. And when she got out, she talked about how the guy who kept her was like, oh, yeah, this is my wife. And Ariel would call Amanda his temporary wife, which is freaky to me. But he would do things like tell her that, oh, yeah, we're going to sleep next to each other tonight and treat her like she was his girlfriend. It seemed to like just completely leave his mind that he's holding these girls captive. He was delusional, really. So May 1st comes around, and Ariel has Amanda come and help clean a room. And that room actually is where Michelle Knight is sleeping and staying, Or, well, sleeping and stay. Where Michelle Knight's being held captive. She said that when she walked up to the door with him, that this was the first time she noticed that the door was locked from the outside. And that's when she was like, oh. So she's also a captive. When Amanda steps inside and sees Michelle, they just look at each other and they can't, she can't read Michelle's expression or even tell be able to tell what she's thinking. She said Michelle seemed like she was dazed. Amanda said she couldn't tell if Michelle was chained like she was. Amanda said that Michelle looked tiny, but older. Ariel just said, this is my roommate. And then he pointedly does not tell Amanda Michelle's name, but he introduces Amanda and said, this is Amanda to Michelle. They both say hi and that's all they say. Then he orders Amanda to pick up the trash. They clean up the room and that's that. So now we're going to jump a little bit into like the perspective from Michelle's side. When... Amanda first arrived. So Michelle noticed that there is another girl missing on TV on April 21st. So she saw these come up and she saw that this girl had last been seen at Burger King on the Rain Avenue, which was pretty close to where the house on Seymour Avenue was. And Michelle actually recognized her. Amanda and Michelle actually used to be in the same class. And the only reason for that was because Michelle was so behind that they ended up in a lot of the same classes. So right away, Michelle had a bad feeling. She was like, oh, no. And she was like, the dude, which was her nickname for him, must have kidnapped this girl. He would constantly tell Michelle that once he gets two more girls, he'll let Michelle go. Ariel also always talked about liking bl- young and blonde girls, and he was talking, always talking about like how he liked Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera. So she kept listening for Sounds in the House, and three or four weeks went by, and then all of a sudden music started blasting all the time, and more than usual. It sounded like it was coming from the basement, not from his room. She assumed he must have Amanda locked in the basement the same way he did with Michelle at the beginning. She figured that he just didn't want her to hear him or to hear Amanda screaming in the basement. Then one afternoon, the dude came up to her room, sat on the mattress and was like, I want to introduce you to someone. I brought into the house. Michelle was quiet, she was so furious, she was so mad, she was like, another girl, another girl is going through what I just went through. She thought, well, he couldn't be satisfied with ruining just one girl's life, he had to ruin more people's lives. So, Michelle was so furious that she was like, I'm just going to confront him about it, no matter how how mad he gets. She was like, you don't have to tell me her name, I already know it's Amanda. He apparently stared at her, surprised, and he was like, how do you know? Michelle was like, I saw her on TV. I used to go to school with her. I'm not silly. I know what you did. He got real quiet and said, it's not Amanda, and then got up and left. So the next day, he moved Amanda upstairs and moved Michelle back to the pink room. He locked her back in there. After she was in there, he took away her TV and was like, I'm going to give this to Amanda. He came back later that day and brought another TV, an old tiny black and white one with the bunny ears, the one that was in the basement. He's like, you're going to use this TV from now on. She tried to turn up the volume, even all the way, and she could barely hear anything and was like, this doesn't work. He just shrugged at Michelle and left the room. The next day, he took her out of the chains and left the room again. And a minute later, he came back in the room with Amanda. So this is why Amanda couldn't tell if Michelle was cheated like Amanda was. So when she came in, Michelle pulled the sheet over her naked body. And he was like, she's got the same thing you got. This is my brother's girlfriend. And Michelle was thinking, no, it's not. Don't be dumb. Michelle looked at Amanda and... Amanda wasn't the smiling girl she remembered from art class. She didn't speak or act like she recognized me. They just stared at each other, and this recollection is the same for both books. So the very next day after this, Ariel came in and unchained Michelle, brought her into the white room that was connecting to the pink room, and said, let's go. Amanda was there on the mattress. She didn't look up, really, when Michelle walked in. And Michelle just kept thinking, I I can't believe he's going to keep her here. She just hoped that her ordeal wouldn't be as bad as what Michelle had to go through, which it was. It was bad for every one of them in equal ways. When she walked in, she thought Amanda didn't have chains but she did. She, when Amanda moved her ankle, she, she saw like, it exposed the chains. But she had clothes on. Amanda had sweats and a t-shirt. And Michelle was thinking, I wonder why she gets to wear clothes. And the color TV that he took away from Michelle was on the dresser near her bed. Ariel walked into the other room and left the two alone. And Michelle was like, I know who you are from school. You were in my art class. Amanda looked right into her face and said, I went to John Marshall High. And Michelle was like, so did I. Then Amanda asked, how old are you? And Michelle was like, I'm 22. And the odd thing is, Michelle's birthday is the day after Amanda's. So April 23rd. So it's very, very weird. Amanda raised her eyebrows and said, you look like you're 13. And then Ariel came back into the room. So their exchanges were pretty much that. For months. Michelle would often hear Ariel take Amanda out, unchain her, and bring her to his room. And Michelle felt horrible. They had very limited contact. But when they did, sometimes Ariel would bring them down to shower. And if Ariel left the room for a second, they would give each other a nice, like a little hi, and then a quick hug. And sometimes she would say, Everything's going to be okay. One day we'll get home. They could tell. From these interactions that Ariel did not want them spending time together. They didn't. He didn't want them connecting in any way. This is one of the ways he kind of kept control over them. And also in some ways later on turned them against each other. And not in a crazy way. Just he would play mind games with them to the point where they thought negatively of each other in some ways. Which I'll go into that a little bit later in part three. Over the next few days, Amanda started to feel really, Amanda got to the point where she started counting in her journal. So she would write three X or four X, pretty much however many times Ariel raped her that day. And she did this with intentions. She wanted to make sure that when she got out, that she could literally speak to each day that he did something to her. She got so depressed that Ariel went and bought her like coloring books and crossword puzzles and he fed her like shit just like he did with Michelle like he brought her Pringles and pizza rolls and fast food and just not great stuff for so especially for someone who's not going out and seeing daylight just greasy gross food and he's only feeding them like once a day. Ugh, It's so freaking gross how we treat them like fucking pets like he owns these people. Later on, she would say that she realized after a few days, after he feeds her or gives her anything, even just a sheet of paper, he thinks he's entitled to be able to do whatever to her. Like he can rape her. He can do whatever he wants. She started not asking for anything just because she knew it was worse when she would because he felt so entitled. One time, and this is a weird one off where, and this is in the first like month. This is all within our first month, guys. I know. It's insane. And we'll skip ahead a little bit because we do need to shorten this up a little bit. This is well over an hour at this point already. But he comes in and lets her know that he has his grandson coming because his daughter has some stuff wrong with her teeth. I don't know. So the kid comes in and he's, you have to watch her. And he brings him in. The kid was just like upset, cried hysterically. She was like, I wonder if you can tell how sad I am. The kid doesn't want to come near her and she can't go to him because of the chain. Ariel picks up the boy to try and calm him, but the crying never stops. And after a little while he takes his grandson downstairs and a few hours later she hears Angie come back, who's the mom. She wouldn't scream though, she was too afraid. Throughout this time, both the girls couldn't brush their teeth. They were only allowed to shower every so often They're just very dirty. Amanda wrote journal entries the whole time, essentially, that she was captive. On May 21st, just a month later, guys, Amanda realized she hasn't gotten her period. And she's like, oh, fuck, what if I'm pregnant? She's so depressed. And she is constantly thinking about the girl in the other room, too. Like, she hasn't seen her or heard anything about her. Since the day she cleaned her room, she has no one to talk to but Ariel. This part broke my heart when I read it. She wrote, and I quote, I miss the feeling of rain on my face. Everything I used to think was a pain really wasn't. I even miss my mom hollering at me. He hasn't attacked me for two days in a row. That's never happened before. Maybe things will get better. All of this was happening for Amanda. Her family was working their butts off to try and find her. Amanda's mom and sister made calls to Amanda's friends. They called 911 almost immediately after Amanda didn't come home. Amanda's family was heartbroken. Much like Amanda regretting all the normal teenage stuff that she did, her mom also regretted a lot too. And this is the heartbreaking part. Her mom was like, me and my daughter used to butt heads about like her having her music too loud, stuff like that. Her mom just felt completely regretful of those moments and it's so funny because at the same exact time these two were doing the same thing like every single day just thinking about all the regrets they had about the way they treated each other and things like that so it's very heartbreaking but they never gave up like they constantly went on the news an investigation started pretty fast people were interviewed like amanda's boyfriend amanda's mom and sister they got some police hints which actually did not help the investigation like false hints about a white van which was not the case there was a maroon van that picked her up and the other incorrect information was they said that someone witnessed her being picked up by a van full of guys not just one older gentleman so a lot of Misinformation was given to the police, and unfortunately, that didn't help the investigation. But I will say that cell phone thing still bothers me. Anyway, (laughs) the police interviewed people in Amanda's neighborhood, and this was a little bit bigger than Michelle Knight's because Michelle Knight had run away before and stuff like that. And there was an investigation for Michelle Knight's case, but it wasn't as broadcasted as this one. And the police, unfortunately, focused on the wrong people like Amanda's boyfriend, and this customer from the Burger King, 35-year-old guy who liked to hang around girls, like younger girls, and because they heard white car, this actually got the cops' attention because her boyfriend had a white car. So a lot of just crap, honestly. As the police and stuff were focusing on all that, Amanda was sinking into a depression, and then eventually she was like, you know what? Life is giving me a test. I have to pass this. God would not give me anything I couldn't handle. I can do this. During the summer of that year, Ariel Castro was just a monster and did the little things to fuck with these girls. Like, for instance, when it was hot in the summer and Amanda asked for him to turn on a fan, he said, in a minute, and obviously she could not turn it on because it was across the room and she was chained up, so... He would use like little things to control these girls as if he didn't already have all the freaking control in the world, but he would do things to torture them in like small ways like that. There was even one day when in June where he was talking about how he wanted to get another girl, a third girl, and he even had a girl come over one day and he was telling Amanda that he was going to let her go once he got another one. So he had this 115 15-year-old girl come over and apparently they just hooked up, which is still fucking gross. No 40-year-old man should be hooking up with any 15-year-old girl, but apparently she was into it, he said, and they smoked weed and yeah. But he didn't keep her, he didn't keep her captive because people saw her going into his house, so he just let her go. And Amanda believed him because... If he was to have raped her, he wouldn't have let her go. Ariel was pissed because the girl stole his weed, which, good, on that girl, I guess. The guy should have everything taken from him. But So after a while, Amanda got so used to this that she stopped fighting because she knew if she fought, he actually enjoyed that more. So she just stopped fighting. She just laid there and took it. So, she, yeah, she... she One night he's having a mental breakdown and was like, let me go home or kill me. She just screamed it. She just couldn't hold it in anymore. And he asked her if she wanted to die. And she was like, no, but I don't want to be here. She said, at least if I was dead, I could see my family from heaven. So he just looks at her and quietly says, okay. Then he goes in the hallway, grabs an old vacuum cleaner and wraps the the cord from the vacuum cleaner around her neck and starts tightening it. She said she felt the cord squeezing tighter and tighter around her throat. I'm sorry if I get a little emotional during this. This is just heartbreaking. She said she suddenly felt calm and she closed her eyes. She was ready to die. She said she starts to feel a release and there was no more pain. And of course, the cord suddenly goes loose, and he throws it on the floor. He's I'm not here to kill you. He's like, I don't want to kill you. This is just about my sexual problem. He storms out of the room, and then she realizes, after she's done rubbing her throat, because obviously her throat is pretty bruised from the cord, she was like, this man enjoys hurting women, and I want people to know it. I don't want him to get away with it. I need to outlast him. So Amanda was just fighting spirit from this point on. Obviously, she got sad and upset and stuff like that. So now we're going to jump into a little bit about Gina, who is the third victim of Ariel Castro's kidnapping and is held captive as well for the remainder of the time. On this day, it was a normal day for Gina. She went missing on April 2nd, 2004, and she was the youngest of all of them, and she was 14. She was last seen at a payphone around 3 o'clock p.m. while she was walking home from her middle school on West 105th Street. At the time, she was friends with Castro's daughter, Arlene, and shortly before Gina disappeared, she and Arlene had called Arlene's mother, Nilda, for permission to have a sleepover at Gina's house. Just so you know, Gina is just short for Georgina, But Nilda said no, and the two girls parted ways. Arlene was actually the last person to see Gina before she disappeared. Gina was under the impression that Ariel was picking her up to drop her off at home, and she trusted him because she was friends with his daughter, much like all these other girls. It's so fucked up. The unfortunate thing is no one witnessed that she was abducted, and an Amber alert was not issued. Which angered her father. He actually went on to say that an Amber Alert should be issued for any missing child. It doesn't matter if they're abducted or if they run away, like a child needs to be found. And he fought to try and change that law. So I will go more into details on the next episode. This is already a very long episode. And I apologize, you guys, but I'm trying to get this all into three. So, yeah. I know this is a lot of information, and I feel bad that this is so dark, and this is, like, this is a lot. We'll do some, like, lighter stuff after, and then we will jump right back into some killings. There are a couple of really eerie stories from the 50s that I want to check out with some celebrities, but we'll talk a little bit about that later. You will be getting another episode very soon here. I'm actually doing another episode of the eerie stories or eerie stories. And this will be a part one of that. It's not ghost stories. It's just eerie stories. And that's going to be another ongoing thing that we're going to do. I think you'll like it. It's a little bit different from what I've done before. But let's just say it's about people's lives changing in very weird ways. I'll leave it at that. But you can check that out tomorrow, actually. I hope you guys like this and I apologize that it took a little bit to get this out, but there's a lot of research that went into this and I'm trying to make sure to frame it in the right way and talk more about, I don't want to talk all about Ariel Castro. I want to talk about the experiences that these girls had and I'm trying not to go into too much details on the rapes because it's just, it's horrible. And It happens a lot so it's it i think we get what happens so i'm trying to keep the harsh details out of there and only talk about what really needs to be said but yeah make sure to check out our instagram there will be some photos and stuff posted our instagram always has stuff relating to the case that you like a visual that you can look at so make sure to check it out i am going to surprise you now (laughs) but this will be the final episode where it's just audio. So what I mean by that is that going forward, we will also be on YouTube and potentially on Facebook video. I'm not sure about that yet. I don't know what they allow on Facebook, but I do know that I can at least post this on YouTube. I'm gonna have to cut out the swears though. So guys, if you hate my swearing, lucky for you, I will be doing that a lot less now. More so that I can get this content onto YouTube because people have been asking. They're like, why isn't your face on there? <laughs> I personally don't like after recording the first episode with video. I I honestly hate my face. <laughs> yeah, you might not. So some people find it endearing. Face only a mother could love. Just a mother. Ugly as a rat. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, But yeah, make sure to check out our new episode, which will be on YouTube. I will have a link to the YouTube channel posted just to, to throw this out there. The YouTube channel will have content from when our podcast name was different. And if you didn't know this, this podcast used to be called the weird and eerie, but it's not the name I originally wanted. So I changed it to the eerie podcast or eerie. Yeah. It's my jam. If you guys want, oh yeah. We also have a Patreon now, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that because I'm excited about it. But we have a Patreon where you can get exclusive content. You can get podcast episodes without ads, free merch, even for the smallest tier, you can get free sticker and everyone who signs on to our Patreon, even the smallest tier will get a shout out on an episode. So I'm going to start leaving room for that on the episodes i want a way to recognize you guys and i really want to be able to surprise you guys i really appreciate everyone who's been listening it means a lot to me so i wanted a way to reward you guys too the patreon starts at like seven dollars and goes up from there but obviously the higher the tier the more rewards i can give remember i'm pushing this out on my own so this will help me be able to bring you guys the merch that you want And I am going to have merch already at first, and this will be exclusive to Patreon. I want to throw that out there. There will be merch that's going to be on our merch store as well, which is another exciting thing I'm going to talk about. I've been working on designs for shirts, hoodies, hats, bags, all the things, literally all the things, and stickers. So that stuff will be out there, but the shirts that are going to be available on Patreon are literally just for Patreon. And that starts with the second tier, the first tier will still get stickers and stuff and a shout out and exclusive content, but just wanted to throw out there that the shirts start with the second tier, which I think starts at 15. I don't know, but this will help me get more merch out to you guys, get more episodes out to you guys also help me make this podcast even better. And I appreciate everyone who's been listening. It's still crazy to me. Having so many people listen to my voice on a weekly basis, I appreciate the flexibility too because I've, i let's not lie, I haven't been exactly consistent with this because of all the shit that's been going on in my life. But you guys have stuck around and I appreciate that so, so much. I can't elaborate how much I love doing this. (laughs) It's literally the highlight of my week. Yeah, Patreon link will be in the description and I will also share it on the Instagram by itself outside the podcast episodes. And I did share some of the designs that we have so far. The the Patreon exclusive one isn't available to look at yet. I will have that on the Patreon very soon. So you guys can look at it, but sign up. You will get free stickers, free stuff. Who doesn't love free stuff? Make sure to check out our website. Our website is theeeriepodcast.com. Our Instagram is instagram.com slash podcast. Facebook is the same. Facebook.com slash the Eerie Podcast. And if you have a story that you want read on one of our ghost stories or Eerie Tales, Eerie Teals, Eerie Teals. Why did I say it like that, guys? I don't know. But if you want one of your stories read on our podcast, send it in to info at the podcast.com. All right. I think that's it. Yeah, make sure to check out our YouTube channel. That will be... We'll have an episode posted tomorrow. I just want to throw out there too. Remember, I'm going from audio only to video. There's a lot of adaptions that need to happen with that. The audio and video look great. I'm not going to lie. I freak it out on camera a lot. So you guys can laugh at the way I like do things. You guys got to actually get to see it, <laughs> which to me feel, makes me feel a little exposed. But you know what? I'll do whatever I can for you guys. Yeah, check it out. I hope you enjoy it. The eerie tales starts tomorrow, and I'm so excited that everything, all of this has just been such a great, fulfilling thing, and I'm so glad to be doing this with you guys. I love you guys. All right. I will see you tomorrow, and then next week we will have the part three of this episode, or of this series, oh my God, out for you guys. So make sure to stay tuned. All right thanks guys bye yeah you guys just don't be a gross old creepy man with a dirty ass kitchen and that steals young girls because you feel like you have a power complex just don't be an asshole don't be a fucking freak a leak. i'm gonna swear as much as i can on this <laughs> before video time all right bye guys